Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 6, Science and Herbalism with Seven Song. Seven Song is an experienced clinical herbalist, educator, and botanist in Ithaca, New York. He runs the Northeast School of Botanical Medicine and is an herbalist at the Ithaca Free Clinic. In this episode, we speak with Seven Song about the importance of science in herbalism, some good herbs for COVID, some wild crafting tips, and botany in general. Hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, we are excited today to welcome my herb teacher, Seven Song, to the Plant Cunning Podcast. Thank you so much, Seven Song, for taking the time to be with us here today. Sure, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Um, so, I would love for you to just take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, tell us a little about your background and who you are, and um, what folks want, would want to know about you. To start, oh, let's see. So my name is Seven Song. I'm a Russian Jew, uh, originally from Long Island, New York, and from parents who are from City, New York, and from other relatives who are from Eastern Europe. Um, and I'm not sure what else to say. Uh, I've had uh, long hair for a long time because I got a really bad haircut when I was 14 years old, where they kind of the barber took revenge on my longish hair then. This is 1970s. Mm-hmm. I cut it really short. And to this day, I think I've kept it long <laughs> just because of that. So I guess that's not a very good uh, sign of, of who I am, really. But there you have it. How did you first get into plants? Like, what was what was it that brought you to herbs and um and and nature? I think that so that's a you know all those kinds of questions are very difficult um, to answer, but I've always had an interest. So I'm I'm really from I'm I'm from the suburbs, like you know Long Island suburbs, you know just houses, 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 shopping malls small boundary woods, highways, small boundary woods, malls, roads. But even when I was pretty young, so I'm putting the boundary woods in there because they're actually important to me. So before, when you have houses interfacing with large roads, highways, interstates, that kind of thing, they, there's woods there, right, to protect kind of a, to soundproof the houses and make a little space. But I would spend a lot of time, so maybe, maybe they're 60 feet, 70 feet wide, um, but they're untended, you know, entirely. So actually a lot of the native vegetation uh, grows in there. I didn't know that at the time. So I would often go to these boundary woods. So I was born in the late 50s. And so by the mid 60s, I'd be going uh, into the woods, into these little woods, uh, not very far from the highway. I mean, it's funny, the woods part wasn't scary, but, you know, the, the uh, highway was pretty close by. And uh, I would look, mostly I would look for animals. So my, my first science that I liked was astronomy. And so I had a little planetarium really cheaply made. Like these, it's amazing, right? With computers and there's just like planetariums like that are, are so much better. And mine was, you know, this round globe with holes punched into it. And I would go into the bathroom in our house, the only place there was a downstairs bathroom without any windows, but there was lots of mirrors. But I would, you know, I'd just look at the stars in the little planetarium. 
Uh, and then not too long after that, uh, the next science that I became interested in is uh, herpetology. And herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. And that hasn't changed at all. Mm. I've always, I'm still quite interested in if AC, I'm sure I can tell you, you know, if we're walking around and we see some interesting frog or toad, it doesn't have to be that interesting, or <laughs> turtle, um, I, I often take notice. Um, yeah, and then later it became plants. But actually plants, I didn't really start taking an active interest in plants until my late teens, early 20s. So plants were much later. But part of what I'm saying, I guess, also is I've always had, I've always been one of those people that is interested in both science and nature, and really the science of nature. You know, how do things grow? What is photosynthesis? Why do clouds have certain shapes? Yeah. That it's always been a deep part of my life. So my interest, I think, has been forever. In my family, my father had some interest in that. Unfortunately, he felt, I think, trapped in a job where he didn't get much time out in nature because I think he would have enjoyed it. But he would do things. He was a hobbyist, so he would collect leaves and they put them into clipboards or collect pieces of wood and sculpt them. Okay. Uh, I was more on the uh, wanting to study them. And that really hasn't changed at all. I mean, for a while in my late teenage years, I had very little interest in anything except, you know, trying to get through the world, which seemed very paradoxical and complicated. I mean, it still seems very paradoxical and complicated. <laughs> yeah. uh, but back then, it was way more confusing because my own brain was way more confused. Um, I guess that happens in teenage years, huh? I think it's pretty prevalent. I remember meeting somebody because I actually, weirdly, I got a job as a social worker in my late teens. Oh. And I, had, I mean, I had no study for it, any, any training for it. And one of the people we work with always talked about how happy she was. She was, I mean, she's only in her early 20s, but how, you know, satisfied she was as an older teenager. And I just never really could believe her, right? I <laughs> but I think it was true. I think, you know, but, but lots of, but it's true. Lots of human teenagers uh, go through troubling times as they try to figure the world out around them. Um, and so that's, and so plants started coming in in my early 20s. My first herb school was 1981 in a school called the Platonic Academy of Herbal Studies mm -hmm. and uh, in Santa Cruz, California. I'll say it again because it's really the name of the school, the Platonic Academy of Herbal Studies. Did they study uh, been the, around uh, for a long time. Did they study like What's the that? ideal forms of plants or something? <laughs> I've never been. So it's right. So the, the, the con, you know, kind of the casual or people usually use the word platonic to mean a non-sexual relationship. That was never it because platonic, of course, refers to Plato. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly right, Isaiah. It's, it's the relationship. I don't really know why, but it had more to do with some idealized thing rather. I'm really not sure why he called it that, actually. I went there uh, for maybe five, I don't know how long, a couple of months. Uh, and, but when I was there in 1981, I was introduced to Christopher Hobbs, who's an herbalist botanist. And yeah. Chris started teaching me how to identify plants technically. We'll talk more about this later, I think. Yeah. Uh, so how to ID plants with dichotomous keys. And that has not changed. Ever since Chris started showing me that back then, uh, I have been kind of a junior botanist. I mean, I'm a botanist. I'm just a, what would be called a lay botanist because I didn't go to university for it. Mm. Yeah. And then you studied with uh, Rosemary Gladstar and later Michael Moore. Yes, excuse me. I'm just taking something to drink. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's carbonated, so I can see if I don't burp too loudly <laughs> uh, <laughs> on here. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my first school was 1981, the Platonic Academy of Herbal Studies in Santa Cruz. My next school was also in California. I think all, I mean, there was very few herb schools in the early 80s. 
<clears throat> and of course, they're all centered on the West Coast, which mm -hmm. still is true, right? Lots of, I would say that the majority of herb schools and classes are in the West Coast still and, you know, clustered between, you know, somewhere between like Portland, Oregon and, and uh, San Francisco. Yeah. So then in 1983, I went to the California School of Herbal Studies um, and Rosemary Gladstar uh, was one of the teachers. There were many teachers. Uh, so that school, uh, excuse me a second, um, that school had many uh, teachers come in. Christopher Hobbs again would come in and uh, just lots of teachers. And the advantage of that is, you know, getting many people's perspectives. You know, herbal medicine is way more idiosyncratic than modern medicine. I mean, you know, one person will tell you a plant does this thing and somebody else will tell you the plant does something very different. That's, I would say that would be uncommon in, in modern medicine where somebody would say this drug does this. People might give off-label uses, but basically people make stuff up all the time in the herb world. And so it's sometimes, so teachers' opinions can be very uh, diversified. Uh, so 1983, California School of Herbal Studies, then just on my own. And then I started going to herbal conferences um, first as somebody who parked cars, um, and then later as a teacher. Uh, it was easier to get in as a teacher back then because there's so few people studying, and I had stayed with it. Even though it's only been like five or six years, I st once I started studying, I stayed with it. Then in 1994 and 1995, I studied with Michael Moore in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Michael Moore the herbalist, but I, and I taught botany. What I haven't said is throughout everything that I've just said, I've tried, so I've always, for especially my early life, I tried to live with less money. So I'm a white male. And so that gives me an educated, you know, went to high school. Well, actually, I didn't go to high school. I dropped out at 15. But anyway, still I have all the privileges that come with this. Uh, but even with that, I tried to just, you know, have more of a, I don't know, a vagrant or wandering lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did lots of trades. So for instance, going to Michael Moore's in order to get to that school less expensively, uh, I taught botany, which was, you know, as I said, in 1981, I started studying this. And now we're talking about 1994. So I taught botany for Michael Moore for two years. That little laugh is the first year I taught botany for Michael Moore. I was so freaking nervous. Oh, I just like, I had never like, you know, because it's a bunch of peers, you know, and standing up and yeah. teaching it. And, and I, really, there were times I thought I would just poop my heart. Right. Really? In a, in a, not in a good way. Yeah, I don't see you like as like a nervous teacher. So it's really yeah. heartening to think of you as like starting out being nervous because then that makes me who's starting out feel a little bit better about being oh, nervous. So everybody listening to me right now, so Isaiah and AC and anybody, almost all herb teachers are nervous. And I have to tell you, so I, I, I teach regularly at conferences. Lots of us are all in our rooms studying nervously before we teach classes. So there are those that yeah. are just like confident and like they've, I don't know if they're studying beforehand and they're relaxed, but I can tell you right now that many of, I, I could absolutely speak for myself, but I could speak for many others because I hang out with lots of herb folks. And many of us, like, you know, especially if we take on a new class, like if I'm doing like a first aid class, something that I've taught, you know, hundreds of times, it's one thing, but uh, let's say I'm doing like tomorrow night, I'm doing a class of uh, being an herbalist in a free clinic. I've only taught that a few times and I keep changing it. So more nerve wracking. But when I first started out, damn, I was so nervous. I, I didn't know if I'd ever get through it. Just like any time when you're nervous. But I did. And you can too, people listening to me. Thanks, Seven Song. <laughs> so what was it like studying with Michael Moore? From my understanding, he was quite the character. 
Yes, character goes with a lot of herbalists, really. Um, <laughs> so Michael Moore's character, he kind of played the grump or the curmudgeon, huh. right? So, so he would call me seven stibbles. I don't really know what that means. But I think it was, you know, it wasn't really positive. It wasn't, you know, <laughs> you know, um, and, but, and he would have other names. But in a way, him just recognizing you and having a nickname for me meant something. So, for instance, most of us herb teachers tend to memorize all of our students' names or want to, it's not memorize, you want to know your students' names, not Michael Moore. So much more like in a teacher role and we came into the class. I mean, he would, he would interact with us. But very different, I think, than some herb teachers that interact very personally. I would say I'm somewhere in the middle, frankly. You know, I'm also somebody who takes a lot of space. Um, but Michael, I think, was a little more distant. But definitely gruff would be a really good word uh, for him. The advantage of studying somebody with somebody for more than one year, though, <clears throat> is you get to see their knowledge grow and their opinions change. So again, in, in the mid-2000s, well, really around 2002, 2003, 2004, I taught botany for him again, but it was very different at this point. So that's quite a ways while afterward, but I would just come teach botany for a few days and then I would leave. So uh, not like previously where I had, you know, I was taking all of his classes as well. But here's the thing that Michael Moore taught me that I'm hoping to teach today on this podcast, which thank you both for inviting me. And that is you could be a non-spiritual, scientific minded herbalist. So dogma is everybody's trap, right? Dogma is a spiritual trap. Dogma is a science trap, right? So yeah. when inflexibility is always a problem. So I'm not, right. when I say science, I don't mean inflexibility, but my perspective and Michael Moore helped it because Michael Moore, I would say was a very science minded. He was, he was a very science minded herbalist. Again, that doesn't mean he's dogmatic and has to follow like rigorous scientific principles and every herb has to go through you know, a double blind, random placebo controlled study, it'd be great if they could, but they don't happen. Mm -hmm. And so it's just for someone like myself, who's in the herb world where spirituality abounds strongly, who doesn't have that as a part of, it's not something that's a part of me because it's just not a part. I'm not interested. My interest lies elsewhere. And to have a teacher who's, who's well received, you know, and, and gets a lot of accolades and is very science minded was just a big relaxing moment for me. And so I, I want to be do that for other people. So if you're, you know, it's not that I'm asking people not be spiritual, but I'm not, I'm asking for people who don't place their spirituality onto me. I think that molecules are amazing enough, right? For me, it's like, you know, no, you know, quarks and molecules and things, rotating spinnings and protons, rotating spinnings. I have no idea what that means. So um, uh, that's, that's my perspective. And I want other people who are more like that to feel comfortable. So again, this is not to subdue anybody else's beliefs, right. but this is to just let those who are more like myself. And when we see a plant wondering about its chemistry and how that interacts with us physiologically, what receptors and enzymes that that works on. And sometimes language is different, less of an energetic language. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know for, for me, having known several people who took your classes, uh, went to your school, uh, they were you know, interested in, in studying with you because you took a very scientific approach to things and they could go other, other places to learn about the other aspects of plants. But I was reading in uh, your uh, eulogy or tribute to Michael Moore, 
that about this, what you were just saying, and, and you mentioned uh, non-reductionist science. So I was interested in what that phrase means to you, because it seems like so often these days, uh, science can be very reductive. <laughs> well, I would say spirituality can be very reductive as, as of well. Course, yeah. I, I, it sounds like a bit of a counter. So I, <laughs> I haven't used that term in a long time. So I have to think about this. All right. So reduction means everything is brought down to a basic principle, and that principle has to hold up under a scientific rigorous light, right? So reduction is basically everything has a basis that could be proven. And of course, that's not always true or not always true yet. For instance, in the world of mental health, to like try to reduce somebody's complex personality would and to reduce and say this person has anxiety or this person has, you know, terminal anxiety disorder, or even more specific than that, that would be reductionistic. But it also reduces the person to just like a set of words rather than a, you know, a whole living complex being. So I would think that Michael Moore took a bigger picture approach. And so while sometimes things can be reduced, sometimes you can say belladonna is due to its anticholinergic tropane alkaloids. That would pretty much be true. But I would also say that chamomile cannot be reduced to like azulene or some of the other uh, flavonoids right. within it. So I think that when we talk about this, some things have ability to be reduced and fun to do it that way. And then other things, you know, so I guess I'm, I guess the word reductionistic there could be also be transformed into the word uh, dogmatic. I would say non-dogmatic herbalist. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess that's, that's true with plants, especially that like have been like a, one, one compound has been extracted and used like a thousand times in lab rats, like comfrey or something like that where usually there's like a, a lot of different compounds working together. Well, that one gets tricky because sometimes okay. one compound, it's funny because I was just reading about a compound. It's a, it's a plant hardly ever used medicinally anymore, but it's a buttonbush, a cephalanthus occidentalis, and it has, it has a very potent toxin in it. I don't really know. It's not used enough by people uh, to really understand its play in there. But I guess sometimes... It's important. So like with comfrey, the, the alkaloids, the group of alkaloids called pyrolizidine alkaloids. And so they can be toxic. Some pyrolizidine alkaloids are very toxic. With this, there's no question. The question is, which pyrolizidine alkaloids and how much do you have to ingest to reach a toxic? Because as we all know, everything has potential toxicity. It's a dosage thing. Like, just, like the most simple idea is just water. Too much water can kill. But that's very simplistic because, you know, comfrey, you know, other toxins are much more potent. So I think when we say that comfrey is dangerous, I don't think anybody's saying like the, the whole plant is, it's these alkaloids in them, but those alkaloids do present a potential problem. Say with boneset or Senecio aureus, golden ragwort, or coltsfoot, all of them have pyrolizidine alkaloids. They're all, you know, asteraceae's. And there is a question of, is there toxicity? And then often the balance is like, well, what, you know, which, which specific pyrolidine alkaloids and how much do you have to ingest and in what form and what part of the plant. Mm. But yeah, so the counter to that is St. John's wort uh, was touted for its hypericin count content. So in the 90s, St. John's wort flew to the top of the charts, the <laughs> charts, and hovered there for a while selling, you know, helping retailers and growers and sellers make a lot of money. 
And they were basing the antidepressant qualities on this chemical called hypericin. The genus is hypericum. Uh, but that just wasn't true. The plant is not the antidepressant qualities of St. John's wort are, nobody knows what they are yet. It's probably a combination. So in there, the reductionism was not helpful in any way. Yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us how you stay current on these things. How do you um, stay up to date? Is it like medical journals and news? And you mentioned conferences before. Um, uh, it's totally Sean Hannity and Fox News. That's all I... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I had guessed, actually. Because <laughs> everything they say is just so clearly, uh, you know, what I'm going to believe. Um, <laughs> so people who don't understand, I am sarcastic. So that I'm say, that's the opposite of how I feel. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's good to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So I read a fair amount. So here's something I find helpful for me and sometimes for other people. There is so much to study and so much to learn. And I mean, very few people, including myself, have just like one interest, right? I mean, I like plants, but I'm also interested in other things in life. As I mentioned, just reptiles alone or insects. Yeah. And so I tend to follow my whims when I have the opportunity, right? So if I'm interested in a group of compounds, then I'll start to study them. And then often within a certain amount of time, and this is true for lots of folks, my interest changes to some other thing. And then if I have the time, because if I'm teaching, then I have to study what I'm teaching. I have to be informed. So I'm giving my students clear information. Uh, but other times I just often follow, follow different threads. In botany, I tend to use Wikipedia. So as a plant person, they follow the APG, which is the American Phylogenetic Group, which tends to be the most current common name, or excuse me, the current scientific binomial, the scientific name, or sometimes called Latin name uh, of plants. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, so often I look it up today, I was uh, labeling some photographs. And so while labeling them, I wanted to make sure that I was up to date with the most current uh, name because names change because now we have DNA evidence to look and see where relationships lie. Uh, for other information, it can be very tricky. One place I definitely get information is there's an email list with a lot of herbalists who have been practicing a while. And sometimes, like I had some questions about Ella campaign because I wanted to use that for COVID. And so I, I just wrote on there because it's really hard to find accurate information when you just type it. I mean, I, one thing that's abysmal is herbal medicine on the, on the web. Yeah, Unfortunately, really, there, are some, there are some good sites. It's a scary uh, but in place general, out there. It, it's a lot of BS. It's a yeah, lot but, of mm -hmm. selling. I'm for sorry, sure. Yeah, the internet's a scary place when you're out there trying to search for, you know, herbal medicine for this or that. It's yeah, a lot of false information. So it's yeah. hard to know what, what herbalists uh, trust. Yeah. Which herbalists yeah, it's trust. easier with, so one of the things about, so this is a question that sometimes I get asked. I'm going to ask myself and then answer it. Oh, that's okay. So why, why being an herbalist? And I think some, one of the reasons that I chose herbal medicine is the company. I think that I just started, like it, often smart, interesting people who have diverse interests and are willing to question dogma. Yeah. And often pretty kind, really. You know, it's, 
like I, around other groups of people that seem way more competitive. And there's always competition. I mean, humans are a competitive animal. But in general, I find people pretty open. You know, when I first started, you know, in the 80s, people being accepting of me and and allowing me into this clique. And so I think, uh, I think so what I'm, I guess I'm saying to answer the question is, you know, after 25 years or so, uh, I have a pretty good network. And I'll reach out sometimes, uh, but it's hard to find. And there's a lot of information that's just not answerable. And then medically, I just look it up. You know, so if I have, if patients are on, on medications that I don't know, I just go online. And there's, there's so many good websites that describe how, you know, the class of a medicine. And uh, they don't say how it interacts with herbs, but they'll say the class of the medicine and some other information, you know, what it's related to. And it's, you know, purpose, those kinds of uh, that information. I have to look up medications a lot. Most of my patients are on medications. Yeah. So speaking of the internet and um, trying to look things up, these are kind of wild times right now with the coronavirus. And I was wondering what you would say the role of an herbalist is with COVID-19. I think it's up to the individual herbalist. So the thing about COVID is that it has a wide range of symptoms. And so I think, there, you know, like so many illnesses or health conditions, there's a point where medical health care, like the modern medicine is necessary, like ventilators, any kind of help with people breathing when they can't breathe, uh, really serious inflammation of the alveoli, some of the, some of the problems that affect people's heart with COVID. So there's a point where medical intervention is necessary. Then there's, the, I'm going to swing and polarize, and then there's the, um, where it's not really many symptoms at all, and so it's, you know, basically that's what your, your job is. The person has tested positive for COVID, and they have, you know, their, their smell is temporarily uh, decreased. Uh, maybe they have uh, a cough and some chills, and so you're basically just doing symptom relief because probably that person, if you did nothing, would get better, and then you have the okay. in-between where some. And that's why I think a lot of us herbalists probably put our time into myself, at least. I think of many herbalists. I mean, I've talked to many since it started in March, where the person doesn't need to be hospitalized, but the symptoms are severe enough where they need some help. And so they might be taking medications and they might be taking herbs and they might be taking, you know, either or and both. So I think that's an important place. So the person, again, is not hospitalized. They can breathe. So most of the people I've worked with, it's tightness in their chest. It's some inflammation uh, of their bronchi, uh, but nothing like the severity that would cause that they would need ventilation or some kind of equipment to help them breathe. Um, so I think, you know, we're basically from that level, from that level down to just, you know, easier symptom relief. Yeah. So for the respiratory side of things, since that uh, obviously COVID has a wide range of symptoms, but that's a really common one. That's the one that people got in contact with me for. So there's also some heart arrhythmia problems that happen, uh, but nobody has contacted me um, about them. You know, it's so funny are, thinking about it initially, yeah. like we're, I, you know, all of us, I think, I think like all of us are just reading, reading, reading about everything. And then like at this point, it's, you know, unless it's like a big headline, you know, I think I, I read less about it now is what I'm saying than I did, you know, for the first few months. So what can the, the lay person do uh, right now who doesn't have that much experience with herbs uh, to protect themselves from the coronavirus? 
I think it's really just, I think it's just what, you know, Fauci, Dr. Fauci and other folks are saying, you know, you limit your social interactions and wear a mask. I think that everything else, there's really, I don't think there's any, there's much you can do for your body. I think that's, you know, I, I think you can take it like things like a stragglers, but I'm not really sure it would help you prevent a virus. You just get a, I mean, it's a, it's a very, it's a very persistent virus, right? That's its thing. And that's the problem with it, right? As opposed to like all the other flus. And right now we're moving back into flu season, but like all the other, so it's a coronavirus rather than an influenza virus. But as, you know, as a, as a respiratory virus, as a coronavirus, uh, you know, I think that if you just get unlucky and touch uh, your shopping cart and touch your mouth and somebody had touched that or a coronavirus, you're going to get coronavirus. You know, if it, if it happens soon enough, I don't really I mean, I've read a number of studies about, you know, the fomites or the fomites, you know, how long the virus stays on surfaces. But I guess what I'm saying is if you come into contact with it, there's a good chance you'll get it. And hopefully your body's in good shape and whatever the reason some people get it worse than others, that you don't, that is not a part of you, you get a lighter case. Right. I was wondering if you could speak to the online controversy of elderberry in, in these times. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> it really is. All right. So, so the, it was, so what happened is basically there was alarmist posts by somebody who said they were an herbalist, they might be an herbalist, might be a good herbalist about something that they learned from their teacher. And so it has to do with what's called a cytokine storm. So this is straightforward. A cytokine storm is when your cytokines is when a bunch of immune cells get activated in a disease and they cause the harm. In fact, that's true even without cytokine storms. So COVID-19 is a virus that gets into your alveoli. When it gets into your alveoli, your white blood cells come into the area which creates inflammation. The job of the white blood cells is to kill the virus, but the secondary effect is you get inflammation of the alveoli and then you can't breathe. So take that and times it by a very large number, and now you have a lot of white blood cells infiltrating, uh, making it very difficult to breathe. So this is what a cytokine storm. So cyte means cell, kind means movement. Storm is a very metaphoric term for this. And so somebody had thought, had written that elderberry could increase the potential of the cytokine storm. It does happen. I mean, it happens in pneumonia. It probably happens in COVID. It's just uncommon. It's always a medical emergency though. And so what really happens is what, you know, this kind of meme post went around and it was really, there's nothing to it. First, elder is not nearly that strong. And really, I don't know any herbs that create cytokine storms. You would have to like whip up the immune system to such a frenzy to do that kind of harm. If elder did that, a plant that's been in continual use for hundreds of years by at least European folks, by probably many others, because also I see it growing in Central America. So many people, I think we would have noticed this a long time ago. So then we're putting in like a separate situation. So, okay, so it doesn't do that with normal you know, influenza or coronaviruses, but how about COVID? But there's just zero there's really zero to it. Like nobody has seen that. And so it's just one of these things that make me hope we have a new president in November. It really won't change that. I just hope we have a new president in November either way. Yeah. So are there any herbs or herbal actions to avoid if somebody is in the stage of COVID where their respiratory system is 
you know, really congested and they're having a hard time breathing, are there things that you wouldn't do? Um, I would avoid being, well, the first thing is protective. So the thing that really irritates people who have COVID is smoke. So, you know, like you would imagine like a really bad scenario is if you live in somewhere in the, in Colorado right now, where there's a lot of forest fires and you have it because breathing in is going to create more inflammation, all particulate. So the first thing is avoidance of particulate matter, meaning smoke in your lungs. Uh, Herbally, I don't know anything that I think like some herbs, I might not use a lot like lobelia because it can open the bronchi up. But that's only if you're if there's smoke in the air or something where you might get more stuff down deeper into your lungs. But I'm not really sure. I mean, I might change my mind later. But I can't think of any herb that I think would increase the inflammation of COVID-19. Are there any go-to herbs that you're finding for reducing inflammation? Yeah, so my go-to herb is definitely elecampane which has become more and more common here in the Northeast. So I live in Ithaca, New York. And uh, it's, we have, you know, in the past, it used to be like, I, I've had this one or two other campaign plants that have just been here for like 20 years. In the past five or six years, now there's like 30 or 40, and they're clearly becoming established and very weedy. Uh, fortunately, it's a beautiful plant. It's not that hard to control. Uh, but the roots of that plant is one of my favorite uh, anti-inflammatories for the respiratory tract. And I would follow that up with pleurisy root, otherwise known as butterfly weed, which mm-hmm. is Asclepias tuberosa. Unfortunately, that's uncommon upstate New York. Every once in a while, I'll see some wild plants. Uh, there are parts of the, there are many parts of the country actually. It's very common, uh, but not up here. I actually saw, I actually saw one plant in this little patch of woods in Syracuse, in like downtown. Oh, really? Syracuse. That was so. Yeah, I was so happy. Planted there. They, they use it, it as a landscape It was plant. sort of like a, a wooded area up on a hill where there maybe used to be a house, it, but nature had taken it back over. I was like, yeah, like weeding <laughs> around it. <laughs> yeah, there used to be a big patch. Um, I forget the name of the exit, but where you get off to go to the Onondaga Nation, uh, there used to be a bunch growing on the side of the road, clearly not planted. And there's a bunch growing around Junius Ponds, a little bit closer to Rochester, also looking not planted, also covered in poison ivy, like it's strangled. It's yeah. over the top. I usually see um, it on the side of the road too. Um, but that, that kind of leads me to a next question about wildcrafting. I mean, there are certain places you probably wouldn't want to wildcraft. <laughs> Where's your route? And maybe the side of the road would be one of those places. <laughs> but you, you wildcraft most of your herbs, right? No, I would say I used to. But ever since working in the free clinic, okay. I have to rely on a lot of donations. So do you have any, any uh, tips for wildcrafters? Oh, yeah, lots. So uh, I still gather lots of plants. <laughs> and it, it, in my life, I probably, I've traveled and wildcrafted throughout the United States, throughout the continental United States anyway. Um, so it's still, it's been a big part of my life. It's still a part of it. <laughs> my body, as it gets older, it gets you know harder to dig out big roots during blazing sunny days in, you know, in southern Missouri. Um, well, the first thing really about wildcrafting is just ethical, right? So not so much legal. There's legal. There's legalities as well. But for me, more important are the ethics of it. Are you hurting a population? And not just plants, right? When you gather plants, you could be hurting animal populations, insect populations, human populations, as well as, of course, plant populations. 
So the, for me, the first thing about wildcrafting is my wildcrafting sustainable. And some things, of course, are very sustainable. I mean, if you're gathering burdock root or dandelion root or nettles, those plants are just prolific. Uh, if you're gathering some wahoo, like euonymus, uh, I think it's atroperpureus. Uh, it's just it's a native plant. It's less common around, you know, where it grows. I'm just giving you an example. There are plants that we have to be really careful. And then there are plants I just stopped using. Like I stopped using golden seal entirely in my practice because even though it's being grown now, it's just like the populations have been so decimated and there's plants like barberry that seem to work as well. So why just, why bother using this plant? Why, you know, still have it like this popular thing in the herb circuit. So for me, a lot of it again is ethics. And so as a botanist, one of the things to know is, is it native or non-native? Non-native plants generally just do better right because they've already moved into an ecosystem or establishing themselves a plant that's native is can be often more damaged by altering the ecosystem so you can easier to damage black cohosh uh, than nettles something like that and then good tools right good digging yeah. fork good set of pruners hori hori so you know not having crap tools that break easy or just harder to use uh, it's easier on the body it's usually easier on the land around you as well but there's a lot just so folks know i have a i have like a 16 page handout on wild crafting on my website i'll probably sevensong.com yeah that's good to know we'll definitely put it in the show notes you have such a generous wealth of information on your website that everyone listening will benefit from so thank you um, so I guess another big important thing with wildcrafting is correctly IDing the plants too, which I know you probably have no problem with. Um, but it's, it seems to me that uh, one of your biggest skills is that you said you learned from Chris Hobbs way back when was is keying out plants. And there are a lot of, you know, a amateur botanists out there who can ID things, you know, from, you know, uh, a book, like a, to buy pictures or whatever. But, um, how do you, you know, for somebody who doesn't know how to key out a plant, like how do you, what is keying out a plant? How do you, how do you get into that? So keying, keying out is, is another term for a dich, is dichotomous keying. That's really, is just the shortening of dichotomous. Dichotomous means two choices. And so when you key out a plant, so sometimes you have three or four choices, but most technical books. So first the, the word for a book that has all the plants of an area is called a flora. So the word flora is used in numerous ways. But for instance, uh, if I have a flora of Cortland County, the county north of me, that means it has all the plants of that, of that area. So because in order, to, in order to remove the, in order to know what plants don't grow there, you have to know all the plants that grow there. And so if I'm looking in a book, it'll, It'll start off, you know, usually big. Like, is the plant, uh, is the plant an angiosperm or a gymnosperm? So I know these words are not commonplace, but you know, is the plant an angiosperm or a gymnosperm? If it's an angiosperm, um, is it, you know, a woody plant or a herbaceous plant? If it's a herbaceous plant, is it a, is it a, you know, biannual, annual, or perennial herbaceous plant? And so, there's a lot of there's no way to get around the terminology, right? Because the terminology shortens it. Like if you had to say all those things using multiple words, the books that we carry to use would be very large and just cumbersome to read. <laughs> yeah. So plant books like Newcombs or the Lone Pine series, uh, they are good. 
The problem is you can't distinguish it. You can't distinguish the plant from a rare plant. So most of the time, people don't come in contact with rare plants. Like rare plants usually means that they're just, they're in a very specialized eco zone. But if you're looking, for instance, at a yellow dock, like there's like five or six things that look like yellow dock. There's some non-native ones and some native ones and some common native ones and some less common native ones. And the only way to really distinguish them would be using a book that keys them out. But I would say, you know, just really if you use Newcombs or the Lone Pine series or a book that at least gives you lots of choices, here's what you don't, here's what I would suggest not using. So there's lots of books that, like the Falcon field guides are really very pretty and well done and they have really good color photos, but they don't show you what plant it might not be because that's what you have to know. You have to know what to exclude. Yeah. And so a book like Newcombs at least has plants that are closely related near each other, often on the same page. So you can see how oh, this one has a larger terminal leaflet and this one has a smaller terminal leaflet. Um, but so if people, you know, historically, people didn't need to key out very much because you lived in an area and your elders taught you the plants of that area. This is pretty much, uh, most of the people I know do not, are not in the area that they grew up in. And also our elders aren't teaching us so much what plants grow around this either. So if you're like a common modern person, like you might be living in Nebraska for a couple of years and then in California and then in Iowa, and those, these plants have different eco zones. And so you have to have a way to distinguish the different plants. But one other thing to do is most areas have native plant societies. And while the term native plant society seems a little exclusionist, often they're just plant lovers. And so you can, you, you can look up the chapters of your native plant societies and uh, go to some meetings. And often, I mean, you're going to find the people who are very interested in plants, local plants. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who teaches botany, I think that um, this might be a good segue to talk about your teaching, your school and workshops and your apprenticeship program. Because as a former student, actually, I shouldn't say former student because you're my teacher. I'm still a student, <laughs> even if I'm not enrolled in your program this year. <laughs> um, but yeah, we spend a lot of time on botany. You take us into the fields one of the three days out of the week that we're in class and we're on plant walks and we're with our big botany books and our loops looking through the loops to identify things. And then we even go on field trips. We go to places to go outside of our, um, the zone in the Northeast. We go to bogs, we go to the mountains. So I would love for you to maybe just tell people about your school, um, the Northeast School of Botanical Medicine. Thanks, Cece. And you're still my student until you become my peer, which is <laughs> <Sweet>. <laughs> um, So I run a school called the Northeast School of Botanical Medicine. It's, I've, been, it's, I've been running it since 1994. Of course, everything's a little bit weird, complicated, and not happening in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm running the school, though, next year. So it's, it's very complicated to discuss how I want, what I want. So if anybody's listening to this and you're interested, go to my website, sevensong.com, and go to the program you're interested in, let's say the weekend herbal program. There's a bunch of drop-down menus or the community herbal intensive. That's the three days a week. And then you can just read the long descriptions about what I'm planning to do next year, which is I'm hoping to go live because I miss in-person classes, but I don't know if that's going to happen, of course. 
So you can read much more about it. If you read it and have questions, you can contact me. Um, so I would say my school is divided into two parts. One of them is about plants. So I do, I teach a lot about botany. That's <laughs> when AC was talking about big books and having loops and sitting down. I miss that. I don't miss it personally because I still do it. Do it. I mean, I constantly uh, key out plants. <laughs> but um, so that's I don't miss part. it either, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of the students leave the school and I'm just so glad to get rid of their Gleason and Cronquist, you know, <laughs> which yeah. is the technical book that we use to identify plants in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. So, but the reason I do that is because if people move around and they want to gather plants, you know, if they move to like Washington State, you're going to use uh, the Hitchcock and Cronquist book. If you move to Utah, there's an entirely different flora. But they all, we all, they all use basically the same terminology because it's science. And science tends to have distinguishing, distinctive terminology that's helpful once you understand the terminology. So the words. Um, so, so the plant side of the school is Proper identification or accurate identification, proper sounds so English, proper identification, I have, I have no English accent, sorry. <laughs> proper identification, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, accurate identification, and then um, how to gather the plant and how to do it reasonably ethically. I mean, as herbalists, we kill plants. I mean, we take plant parts, we kill plants. So how do we do that with doing the least amount of damage to the rest of the ecosystem, right? And how to do it, you know, in a thoughtful way. Yeah. Um, and then how to process the plants. So you make glycerides, you chop them up, you put them in a blender, are you going to air dry them, how to process the plant. And then the last part of the plant is the hardest part, and that is how to, how to use them. Because this is nebulous and constantly shifting and with lots of opinions. So, you know, some people will use like cherry bark more as a relaxing herb for the body. Some people will use cherry bark more for my, like myself when you have a very nervous, hectic cough and like your nervous system is just overfiring in your lungs. And so there's, it's, it's, there's no clear how this plant works. Uh, well, that's not true. Some plants, I'm not really talking about the school. Here's what you're hearing about me. I question what I've learned. And if you're a student in my school, you will hear me question things out loud and then talk about where I have positively seen plants work, where I have not seen plants work, where I expect plants to work, what other people have taught me that whom I trust and how plants work and what I've read. So I try to at least distinguish from personal use to other forms of herbal medicine because plants have been being used since we were fish, right? So we're talking like, I don't know, I don't know when we were fish, but we're, it was a long time since we've been fish. Some of us are but still we were fish. fish. What's that? Some of us are still fish. <laughs> right. So, but if you go back like to that, you know, I mean, animals use plants for medicine and we are animals and we've just like this newer kind of animal that has supermarkets and such. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is we do, we spend a lot of time on how to use plants and, but there's a question sometimes and I'm always trying to figure out and ask others how best and what forms those kinds of things. Then the other side, and this is going to segue into that is a, it's definitely a clinical oriented program. And so by clinical, I mean, patient focused in, in much more than just giving herbs. So first, so I work in a free clinic that I'll probably come up with a little bit later, and so herbal medicine is often hard to purchase. It's the, the information on it is often difficult to understand, and it can be very expensive. 
So one big part of the program is how do we make plant medicines, herbal medicines, accessible and available to people? How do we use language that's more inclusive? And how do we just open the whole doorway up? Because many people are not going to gather their own medicine, nor should they. they they're, people do different things with their lives. Herbalists, one of the things we do is we gather plants and make medicines for people. And so how do we, as herbalists, like just make this form of medicine feel comfortable to people who are used to the modern form of medicine? So I'm not denigrating modern medicine, but there are things about modern medicine that's quite different than herbal medicine, just how you take it. It's a pill. So pills are just really very convenient to take. So when, you know, when people have a question like, well, why bother drinking tea? That's an excellent question. So by us being non-defensive and having you know, a reasonable answer, like these are some reasons why you might want to try to drink a tea, but you have options because options are important. So I'm not really sure if that says yeah. too much about the school. No, but it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, of, it's a comprehensive program. You're learning so much in the months that you know, you spend studying with you. So thank you. Yeah. So, and then there's, so a lot of focus also on anatomy and physiology. So how the body works really mostly on physiology, because when people say they have bronchitis, that's an inflammation of lungs. You can read about what COVID does and see what's inflammation of the alveoli, what plants might work in there. Hmm. So there's a lot of focus on the different physiological systems in the human body. Um, And a lot about counseling. You know, a lot about how to maintain boundaries, how to ask good questions, how to work with people in a way, again, that helps them feel comfortable taking the herbal medicine, which is a big part of it. We haven't, it's now, it's now that we have a less common form of medicine here in the United States currently, but in many countries I visited. So it's not just the United States. Also, so again, you'd be going to a school where your teacher is not particularly spiritual, as in not spiritual and uh, pretty sarcastic. And so basically a typical downstate New York person transplanted upstate New York. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, there's two other aspects of the program that link to your work. There's the field trips that we go on. One includes going out into the wilderness to do first aid on a group of people at the rainbow gatherings. And then the other aspect is getting to see you interact with some of your clients from the Ithaca Free Clinic. And I would love to squeeze in those two topics quickly before we wrap up. So starting with Rainbow Gathering, would you like to explain a little bit about the work you do there? Sure. So uh, this is how I know AC from the Rainbow Gathering. Um, So the Rainbow Gathering is this large group of, so it comes from the 1970s, very much an initial hippie gathering that, meaning hippies from the 70s started, instead of meeting in cities to talk and whatever else they want to do, they meet in a national forest. So it's been going on since 1972. This was actually the first year it hasn't happened. So 2020 is the first not rainbow gathering since 1972. Initially very large, about 20, 25,000 people, uh, more recently, maybe three to 4,000 people. So it's gone down. It's amazing that it still exists at all, really. And so in order to picture it, just think of, an, think of any national forest that you know. Just start in your mind, go down those secondary and tertiary roads. Now you're kind of somewhere in the wilderness, but still you know, near you know, some forest service road. Now imagine hundreds of cars on that forest service ro- road with people building camps. Uh, setting up their tents, some people building kitchens, taking wood, building shelters, 
And so that's what you're looking at. So you're looking at a wilderness gathering with, you know, a couple of thousand people in the past, even more. So, of course, there's problems that can happen with that, though many people do stay and recede afterwards. That's, so there's many, many things to be covered here. But one of the things that happens when thousands of people get together in the wilderness is they hurt themselves. And yeah. so that includes like just hurting yourself by spraining your ankle or hitting your ankle with a hatchet when you're cutting wood, or it could be an exacerbation of a pre-existing condition. So you have some kind of inflammatory bowel disease and now you're bleeding out your rectum. So all for us, we're constantly doing first aid. We see a couple hundred people, like about seven to 800 people over the course of this time. I started keeping count just a few years ago. Now, half of those people would probably be fine if they did nothing. Many of them really are, they hurt their feet because they're walking barefoot and they're not used to walking barefoot. So the remedy for that, of course, is shoes. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but a lot of other people have some serious health issues or exacerbations of you know, pre-existing conditions. What that means is that you, you, know, you have asthma, now you're having an asthma attack. What we mean by first aid is we're just gonna, we're gonna help with your symptoms. Maybe we'll help you figure out a place where to go or what to do afterwards. But first aid is basically dealing with the symptoms at hand as opposed to chronic healthcare like the free clinic. We are trying to reduce that health condition over the course of time. So at the Rainbow Gathering, we see lots of people. Um, it's mixed. It's not. It's. I'm. I'm not sure I would ever go if it wasn't if I didn't do first aid. So I'm. I'm saying this online because sometimes I find it a difficult place to be due to a lot of people going there. Sometimes it's complicated, but I like doing the first aid there, and I like a lot of the people who I meet there, and I do like watching this idea that a village can spring up with fairly basic equipment. You know, there's no electricity there. There's no stages with music going all the time. I mean, people bring instruments, of course. But for us, so I bring my, I've been bringing my students to the Rainbow Gathering since about 1994 or 1995 because we will see hundreds of people and you get a lot of first aid hands-on, which is a whole different thing than didactic learning, I mean, teaching learning, but, you know, by like this, by listening to somebody speaking. Um, which is very helpful, but very different when you're interacting with people because people, you know, everybody has their quirks and health conditions have their quirks. So that's a big part. Yeah. Uh, so we, so I'll go there. Yeah, this is the first year I haven't gone. I've been going every year since 1981, wow. almost every year. I'd like to know um, what, what the wildest thing you've ever seen at a rainbow gathering is. I'm, I'm sure you've seen a lot. <laughs> I think, do you, do, do, do you mean ironic or do you mean worst case scenario? It's the most like out there thing. I think so. I, I'm going to say this out loud. It's I think so. I'm going to go with the most ironic thing I think I've ever seen at the Rainbow Gathering, nice. and that was. Maybe I shouldn't do it. So there's this thing called the Peace Poll that exists in the Rainbow <laughs> Gathering. So it's this poll that people gather around. And one day some people had a fight and somebody took the peace pole and like smashed somebody in the back. <laughs> and I thought that's like the most ironic thing that I've almost ever seen. We actually, we had to get him to a hospital. There was a, you know, first we saw him and then it was pretty serious. I mean, he, oh, his no. back wasn't broken, but we just, we needed x-rays. But oh, no. so when I say there are parts that of the rainbow ironic. gathering that I don't love, that's a good example. 
that sums it up like the Rainbow <laughs> gathering there's all kinds of people you know? it's true and there's some aggressive i mean there are aggressive people everywhere i i would not go to a place that was just people were really all blissful because that's not the world that i inhabit i i appreciate the fact that people are people and going there is working with the just people you know people i don't know i'm getting a little bit let me try to sum this that part up i want to help lots of different groups of people not just people that i'm in agreement with and so even though there's a lot of people at the rainbow gathering more than other places that i would have that there are people that are troubled that go there because it's free so i didn't say this the rainbow gathering is entirely free the food is free i mean you have to bring your own tent but basically so you should contribute but it's a free event and so a lot of people go there from all different classes of folks and so a lot of the people that we see there uh, come from impoverished households and because of that they've never had so this is not about hurting people that's totally different this means that they've never had proper health care and that means like any new thing sits on all the older health issues like so they've had asthma their whole life and they go to the emergency room and it's really bad and they just get treated right then so there's nobody they haven't been taking like a, let's say a inhaled steroid that might reduce the longevity uh, might reduce the symptoms of their asthma so we work with a lot of people actually um, that have a lot of health risks and i like i like working with pop populations that have been disenfranchised and trying to be helpful and connect them to herbal medicine um yeah, so but there's just it's just so many people it's just really if people just wore shoes <laughs> our job would be so much easier <laughs> it's just so easy to lose your shoes there though <laughs> <laughs> i haven't found that yet and other pieces of clothing <laughs> yeah <laughs> that might be true there's that whole tequila song that might fit in right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's a um, a good segue to talk about the Ithaca Free Clinic. And some you were saying you like to treat all sorts of people. And um, that's another big part of your life that I would love for our listeners to know about. Thanks, AC. Um, uh, so in 2005, uh, a bunch of people got together, 18 of us got together. I joined about six months afterwards. Got together to see, uh, to help start a free clinic in Ithaca, New York. From the very beginning, the idea is that it would be an integrative free clinic. So by integrative, we mean that it would have the, it would be patient choice in what kind of healthcare they choose. So in general, the choices we have are conventional medicine. So we have a doctor or a nurse practitioner, most of the shifts that are open. There's nurses there, usually doing the vitals. Um, and then there might be a dietitian once a week, a nutritionist, well, often one or the other. Uh, we sometimes have occupational therapy there. Uh, so more like what I call, would call conventional healthcare. And then we have more on the holistic. I, the words are very problematic for me, but I'm gonna move with them for the moment. And that would include the herbalist. There are two herbalists now on staff and have been for a while. Uh, we have a chiropractor, a acupuncturist, massage therapist. And so we're only open between eight and 12 hours a week for these different practices. Um, and I've been working there since the beginning. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much the last person standing uh, there. And uh, so I've seen thousands of people uh, since I've been there. I so. If you don't hear it in my voice, I want to say that I'm incredibly free clinic proud. Like I think it's 
one of the things I've been a part of that has made a lot of impact on myself. I've learned a lot and other impact on other people. Uh, we give away, all the herbs are free. Um, so we give away, um, I'm getting a little distracted because it just started pouring. So rain distracts me. I apologize. Some people have airplanes <laughs> for me. It's rain. <laughs> cool. I'm sure it's um, coming our way soon then. Yeah, it is. It's, it's pretty heavy. I mean, it's definitely a garden watering uh, kind of rain. That's good. So, um, <laughs> sorry about this. I'm going to move downstairs. I keep talking. So, all the herbs are free. The refills are free. And um, we tend to work with uh, more local people, but really it can be anybody. And uh, I don't know, could you, maybe I need a lead question here. I usually don't. So I will see as an herbalist, anybody who comes to see me, no matter what their healthcare condition is, one thing I haven't said, I probably have implied, but I haven't said really straightforward, is that I really like modern medicine, many, many different forms of it. And by modern medicine, I mean pharmaceuticals, I mean surgical treatments, I mean a whole range of things that we now have available to us that weren't available 10 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever. So this has to be distanced from the idea of our of how medicine is practiced, which is horrible in the United States. So the medical system is terrible. It's despicable. It's incredible because we live in a country that can have an amazing healthcare system where everybody would benefit from it and it would just be so much more positive. So I want to make sure that those are very different than me because I work with doctors and many of my patients need modern drugs. Their healthcare problems are severe enough or they just choose them, like it, these things are options. And so as an herbalist, I'm often working with people who have more severe health conditions, are on pharmaceuticals, and just helping people make choices about the difference. I'm helping, I'm gonna reframe this a little bit. What I'm trying to do there in some ways, and one of the things I'm hoping to do is listening to the person in front of me asking questions and figuring out what are the best options and choices for that individual and how does herbal medicine fit into that. So one way that herbal medicine fits in more easily is that it's free, right? So that the whole price thing gets pulled out of it. Also the consultation is free because herbalists uh, often have different sets of questions than a conventional medical person might be a doctor or a nurse practitioner. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I, they're not, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying our questioning tends to often have different lines of questioning. And so during this course of questioning and listening to the person is like, how, what can I do to really help them the best? And what herbs might be most helpful? What forms of herbal medicine? How much do they need? How much are they willing to take at a time? How much are they willing to get past the flavor of things? Because patient compliance is a big thing. About 80% of the folks that I see there have never used herbal medicine before. So there's a whole dialogue, there's a whole way of trying to make it seem palatable. And not just flavor palatable, but kind of you know, intellectually palatable. So this is, there's a lot to be said about the free clinic. If you're interested, by the way, I've been giving free Zoom classes online. Um, there are, if you go to YouTube and type in seven song herbalist, um, I'm probably a little more coherent. 
Um, there's some free classes that I'm doing my second one tomorrow night on this, which is October 22nd. Um, and so I think, I think that's it. I think, you know, so one of the things is like, how does herbal medicine and modern medicine, how do they work well together? And that's still, for me, something trying to figure out by working with people and by speaking to medical people and trying to present herbal medicine in a way that makes medical people feel comfortable. And so then there's some pushback, like, why do we have to do that? And the reason is because I want it to be accessible. And if doctors are more comfortable with their with herbal medicine, then patients will be more comfortable. So it feels a little bit like we have to like prove ourselves. And the answer is we do. It's just, this is the era that we live in. There's been other errors where herbal medicine never had to prove itself. But, you know, so the realistic, the realistic outlook is this is what we do. And I find it very interesting. And so when I'm working with medical folks, I can, I'm going to kind of divide them in two. And one of them is antagonistic to herbal medicines. And so their question is like, why would you use herbal medicine? But they're basically just saying, why bother using herbal medicine? Other medical professionals will say, why would you use herbal medicine? That's asking the real question. Why would you? And that's an excellent question. Like we should ask that about most of the medications and treatments that we get. Why am I getting this surgery? Why am I taking this medicine? Why should, what's the advantage of this herbal medicine? Yeah, um, So I like that kind of dialogue. Also, it pushes me to think more about why, why should they take an herbal medicine? What's the advantage to them? So that's pretty, that's a little bit on topic, a little off topic. If you're interested, you can go to our website, the ithacahealth.org. Um, right now, all of our sessions are online. So I still go to the clinic to make the medicines for people. That's where they're picking them up now. For a while, we delivered the medicines. Um, but I go to the clinic and then I, uh, then we talk to people online, then we make the medicines and leave them there for people to pick up. If they really, if they can't pick them up, uh, for whatever the restriction is, uh, as long as they live local, we have like within 30 minutes of Ithaca, uh, we'll deliver it for them. It's really great. That's it. Yeah, the Ithaca free clinic is definitely a model for um, free clinics that I think folks who are interested in that kind of thing and starting one in their area, you know, can absolutely use you as um, a resource and and inspiration for their clinics. Um, and then I guess we have time for one more question, and it's uh, what keeps you interested in herbal medicine? What keeps you motivated to do what you do? You have a lot of like fire behind the work that you do. Like what what's that driving force? That's a good question, AC. Um, I'm not really sure what it is. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think it comes from a couple of different places. So I really like being out in plants and what's called being out in nature, you know, just being out in the woods, being out in fields. And so one, there's one part of me that one of the beauties of herbal med, well, first herbal medicine, I would say is the most beautiful form of medicine, right? I mean, it's just, it's just lovely. Like there's smell and touch and taste oh. and you can gather the plant. I can gather the plants. I can be there and and try and look at the little florets and see if they're akeens or capillary bristles or awns, meaning looking very specifically. But I just, I like that. And then I, I like helping people. And this is the path that I've chosen to help people. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of friggin' injustice. I mean, friggin' is, is just another word for what I really want to say, but there's a tremendous <laughs> amount of injustice in the world. And there's a lot of disenfranchisement. There's a lot of people putting on fringes. And so I've cho so 
I've chosen herbal medicine as my interest and my focus in healthcare. And now I want to, I want, I don't know why I care about social justice, I guess. I guess I do. And uh, so, and herbal medicine is one of the ways that I can do that for providing healthcare. I want to say a little bit, it's a little bit off topic. I don't think I've been on topic yet, Mm -hmm. but um, one of the things that an herbalist can do, if you study modern medicine and you understand different diseases from a very modern medical perspective, we can often be bridges and educators for our patients, for the people that we see. And so, so I've talked just recently, I was saying, I'm listening to the person in front of me and I'm trying to help make choices. Something else I can do is we can discuss medications. I'm not an expert. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. And so I can't, I don't really know everything about their medications, but I can listen to them. We can talk about surgeries. The thing though that I can do is sometimes help them explain to them their medical condition as it's viewed through a medical lens. This is why your doctor might be giving you this medication. This is why they're suggesting this surgical, this surgery. And I think that when we do that, we just, it really, because in our modern, in our terrible modern medical system, people get depersonalized and get very little attention. So very different in the past where you might've known your doctor for years and might've been in your family for years. And so this person you don't know, they don't know you well. So many medical people are excellent and care a lot. But many times, I mean, this is one of the most common complaints by people talking about the modern medicine to me, which is depersonalization. For sure. They go there, that person doesn't really know them, just makes suggestions. It feels very aloof. They don't give them the time of day, you know? Exactly. Yes, all this is true. And so I think there's a few things we can do as herbalists. First is we can personalize. Like, it doesn't mean we have to get close to the person, but we can acknowledge them as a person and offer them agency, help them make choices instead of us making choices, helping them understand the choices they have and how to make choices if that's interesting for them. Um, and then also discussing some of their health care as viewed from a medical perspective and putting it into terminology that's easily understandable. So this is why they're saying this. Does that make sense? And that way they get to make better choices for themselves. Uh, so I, I think that's real. I think herbalists, it's incumbent upon us as much as we feel comfortable uh, to take on this role. It's a, it's a role I feel comfortable because I'm pretty medical oriented anyway. And so it, you can see the relief in somebody when you discuss this autoimmune condition, is effect, this is why you're taking this medication for this autoimmune condition, because it affects these specific groups of cells. This is why you have side effects from that medication. Mm-hmm. But, and then also say, so my goal is not, let me say that really clearly because it's true. My goal is not to get people off their medications. My goal is to help understand better. That's right. very lovely. Yeah. yeah. And thank you very much, Seven Song, for being on this podcast. It's been a very educational and uh, interesting interview from my end. Thank you. Yeah. Good luck with it, both yeah, of you. It's been awesome. Thank you for bringing plants thank into you. people's lives and into their ears. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much again, Seven Song, and uh, we'll we'll talk soon. I'll put all of the things that you mentioned in the show notes and your website and links to the clinic and a little about the Rainbow Gathering and all that. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks. I think we're getting some lightning in between us. Oh, oh. cool! <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <Ow. laughs> exactly.
Interesting. Okay. Well, well let's we'll log you, off then. We'll leave you to the rain. <laughs> yeah, All right. Bye now. Bye.